Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Colleen Dorsey. Welcome, Colleen. Please tell us about yourself. Thank you so much, Mary. I'm thrilled to be a part of your podcast. I am a the Director of Organizational Ethics and Compliance at the University of St. Thomas School of Law in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. In that, um, in that role, I lead a master's degree program for attorneys and non-attorneys in ethics and compliance. And so my, um, and prior to that role, I was a, an in-house, uh, in-house counsel for the cheese and butter company, Lando Lakes, uh, based in Minnesota here. And in that role, I, I was primarily the antitrust attorney and under that kind of compliance umbrella, the general counsel sat me down and said, we need a compliance and ethics program. Antitrust is sort of compliance. Will you create a program for us? And so I did that. Um, and that's kind of where I get my grounding and my background in compliance and ethics. Wonderful. Thank you. And I've definitely purchased Lando Lakes butter before, so I'm familiar with that brand. <laughs> yes. I always mention that it's the cheese and butter company. People know it. <laughs> you were instrumental in the introduction of an organizational ethics and compliance graduate degree program being introduced at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. How did this come about? Well, I wasn't, nece- I wasn't necessarily instrumental in introducing it. What I have been is in- instrumental in actually implementing it. Mm-hmm. How it came about is the dean of the law school, his name is Robert Vischer, he went out and sort of canvassed the corporate uh, network that St. Thomas has in the Twin Cities area to ask if they had um, thoughts on or would support a master's degree level um, education in ethics and compliance. And almost to a person, they they supported that, the notion of having uh, a master's degree in in ethics and compliance. What What they counseled him at the time was to make it a broad program and not make it into a, like a financial services or a healthcare compliance, you know, something that was very uh, narrow. And so that's, that's really the, the reason our program is structured the way it is, and it has a broad approach to compliance and ethics with a specific focus on ethics. Interesting. Thank you. And I'd be interested in your observations about the evolution of formal uh, education of ethics and compliance in tertiary education. Yeah, I think that it is um, definitely, you know, the, the uh, one of the hallmarks of a profession is that it requires specialized knowledge. And I think we can all agree that compliance and ethics has gotten to the point where, you know, you really do need a specialized set of, set of skills in order to excel as a compliance and ethics professional. And in some areas, you know, such as financial services compliance, it's it's actually required. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that it's very, um, I think it's very reasonable, if you will, that these, you know, higher institute, higher education institutions are now coming up with these degrees at the level of masters in order to address that profession as it's just kind of burgeoning. I mean, we have um, our, I have an advisory board for my program that's made up of, of approximately 23 different companies, and it's largely the compliance and ethics officers of Target, 3M, United mm-hmm. Health Group, um, and they are constantly looking for, you know, um, it, compliance and ethics professionals that are, you know, can hit the ground running. And and so this kind of education, I think back on when I started to do this in, mm-hmm. in my role at Lando Lakes and had this program been, an, been in place, you know, it really would have helped me 
get grounded in all the different areas that a compliance and ethics professional needs, investigations, anti-corruption, white-collar crime and compliance, cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many different areas that it takes years and years of on-the-job training, but with this kind of a degree, you can get that kind of knowledge base in one fell swoop, if you will. Mm. So I, I think it's, I think it's continuing to be um, finessed by universities. I see new programs that are offered all the time, um, and so I, I think it's a, it's on a wonderfully upward trajectory. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to ask you, in what direction do you think we're headed in for ethics and, and compliance being taught at universities? So it sounds like there's increased appetite for it and you're seeing it evolve and and grow from, from where you first started with your own program. Yeah, when I started this program, well, started um, in the in the role of director of the program, which was November of 2015, mm-hmm. there were maybe half a dozen programs at the university mm-hmm. level. Right now, I think there's probably close to 30 different mm-hmm. masters. You know, one of the issues, or I, I shouldn't say issues, but one of the curious things about this this level of education is we call it a master of studies in law in ethics and compliance. Mm. Um, you know, a different university, whether it's Fordham or Drexel or Loyola, they might call it a master's of jurisprudence in mm. compliance or a master's of law studies. So it has, they, they all have different references to the degree, whether it's an mm-hmm. MSL, an MLS, an MJ. And unlike an MBA, which is sort of universally known, mm-hmm. I think that's to the extent the degree hasn't gotten more attention. I think that's one of the reasons why, I guess that's my point in bringing this up is that mm-hmm. I think it really needs a, a common name, um, which I, we did start a, a consortium of universities where we're going to try to tackle this amongst other um, mm. issues to ensure that at that higher education university level that we're doing everything we can to promote the profession, promote the education, and really grow it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a personal preference for what that name would be if you were the one that got to decide? Well, I I think a master's in the name, master's of studies in law or master's of law studies, mm-hmm. um, MLS or MSL makes sense to me. But of mm-hmm. course, you know, every university has its own thoughts on that, which is probably why it hasn't gotten to a common name um, already. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it really is, um, I think it's something that's probably important to the to the degree and to the profession as a whole, because then it will be kind of universally recognized as the gold standard, right? And, and education in this space. Mm-hmm. And would you want the words ethics and compliance to appear? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because ethics was purposefully put before compliance with respect to St. Thomas's um, mm. program. Mm-hmm. It was very uh, well thought out. And because of St. Thomas's uh, background and kind of firm um, set, uh, firmness in the ethics space, uh, we have one of the biggest ethics faculties um, in the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, that was a kind of a um, something that was very important to the university, but we are one of the only ones that has ethics sort of as it's, um, you know, in the name and as a focus. So I don't think that ethics and compliance or compliance and ethics is necessarily what you choose to call it is necessarily the issue. It's really just, you know, um, MSL or Master of Studies in Law in Financial Compliance or Master of Studies in Law in Healthcare Compliance, whatever the university that's running the degree chooses to call it, as long as that, you know, that first Master's of is uniform, I think that will help all of us. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. 
And so changing gears a little bit here, you also have a strong interest in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Let's go back to basics for a moment and level set on what these terms mean, specifically in relation to the compliance practitioner. So I'll ask you to share with us your artificial intelligence and machine learning 101 explanation, please. Sure. So artificial intelligence has actually been around for a really long time, probably dating back to the 1930s when um, Alan Turing was was thought to be the creator of AI. He's He was the guy that was played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the Im- imitation game who broke the Enigma code in World War II, which is thought to have ended the war several years early. So, you know, artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. And I think the reason why it's become such a buzzword recently is because of the massive amounts of data that we are now um, have accumulated over years and that we can now get to in a much more um, economical way because of the computer power and the cloud. And then we've also got just much more sophisticated and breakthrough algorithms and tools and frameworks. And and so that's why I think uh, artificial intelligence itself has been just so much more um, prevalent in what we read and what we hear about today. So, you know, when you you, um, think about when I actually started getting interested in artificial intelligence, I wanted to I wanted to learn what an algorithm was because everybody talks about these algorithms. And so I looked up what an algorithm was, which is, you know, algorithms are not code. Um, Code's written in many different languages like JavaScript, Python, Ruby. What an algorithm is instead is a set of commands that are written clearly so that it can be used in different programming languages. So if you think of um, an algorithm, an example of an algorithm being um, to add two numbers, you know, it's going to be step one, um, you're, you're looking at the, the sum and then step two, you're, I mean, it's, it's just step by step. It's telling the computer exactly what to do. And the way that it's telling the computer exactly what to do depends on the, on the language of the code that, that they're using to build the algorithm. So, um, so simple algorithms like, you know, how to, um, add up numbers is, you know, at the time it was very, um, earth shattering and, and it has been very useful, but it's those kinds of simple algorithms with step-by-step instructions to the computer aren't able to handle the more complicated, uh, problems that we are seeing today. Like, so imagine having to write the commands for a computer to teach the computer to recognize a face. It would have to be, you know, it would be way too complicated and not be practical. So, um, so now what we see is machine learning, and that's another phrase that we hear a lot of. And machine learning takes a, a very different approach. Instead of manually creating the algorithm by writing the commands, inputs, which is really a set of um, sets of data, uh, are put in with an output that the, that the computer is told um, that the user wants to, f- to see be- at the end of, you know, the, the computer's review of the inputs. That's the training data. So the inputs are the training data. And the, the training data, um, let's say we want to, um, we want to create a canine recognition program. So the inputs and the correspond- corresponding outputs, which is the training data, is fed into a computer the training data creates the algorithm that matches the inputs to the outputs. Outputs. So, in other words, the, the developer doesn't have to create the algorithm. The machine learning, um, the computer does it on its own um, after having been given the output 
and then the input, if that makes sense. So the, so with the results of that training data, then we have a model. And then with that model, new inputs can be put into the model to get the outputs, which is the computer's best guess at whether the image is a dog or a cat. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. So it's, I, I just really had to learn from just understanding what an algorithm was. And I think that, um, you know, to further understand how advanced it's become, um, I also really wanted to understand what a linear algorithm was. So a linear algorithm is when, you know, it's the most basic type of searching algorithm. Like if you're looking through, you know, when we had paper phone books and you went line by line to find someone's number, that's, that's an example of a linear algorithm. Developers now are using much, much more sophisticated algorithms that actually mimic the human brain. Um, And those are called artificial neural networks. And, you know, that is um, really trying to mimic the human brain where you're putting in multiple inputs and the brain can actually further process all of that and infer hidden as well as complex nonlinear relationships. It's capable, you know, our brain's capable of learning from the past, from our past mistakes. And that's what developers are trying to do now with computers is mimic how the human brain works. Um, and, and that I think is, is important for sort of the lay person to understand because I think it's really um, telling how sophisticated it's become and how prevalent and and what the potential problems might be. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you've mentioned um, identifying, say, an animal. Are there any instances you can think of where machine learning and or artificial intelligence is already being put to good use by compliance officers? Yeah, I, there's um, AB InBev. Uh, they're the company that owns Miller and uh, many other mm-hmm. um, beer brands. They created a program called BrewRight, which mm-hmm. is an AI platform. And what it does is sort of in, you know, milliseconds, reviews millions of documents to flag um potential financial um, problems or or situations where they might want to take a further look. Like, let's say um, they, they have a, um, they have um, centralized data and they run the algorithm on their information and, you know, they, they might want to understand whether, um, there's political connections of a specific vendor and whether the relationship could raise bribery um, or other ethical concerns. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just gives the compliance department much faster insight into whether transactions need to be investigated further. Mm -hmm. Uh, Financial services um, firms use for, you know, compliance. I mean, for their compliance people use, this kind of AI technology in order to just sift through data and recognize patterns that might be um, super problematic. And, you know, it used to be that compliance practitioners would have to um, take sort of review random samples of transactions across, Mm -hmm. you know, countries in which it operated. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, it can look at millions and millions of data points in um, record time. So I think that that is, in a nutshell, the biggest use that compliance professionals could get out of um, using AI. Mm, so like a predictive anal- analytics tool. Right. I mean, it's, it's, as sophistic- it's, it's so sophisticated. It can, some of these um, algorithmic systems can detect emotional sentiment of a communication. Um, It can, you know, it can pull out people that have been mentioned, organizations, their social networks, um, you know, looking at patterns so that, you know, it just cuts down on the amount of time a compliance professional has to look through mountains Mm -hmm. of, of documents. Well, that sounds good. 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, a lot of the time we see with the advent of new technology, uh, it brings about certain negative consequences. Um, for example, a lot of the time, new technology can infringe on data privacy in some way. Can you tell us about some of the current ethical ramifications of using machine learning and AI? Sure. So, you know, I think to start with, I think bad uses are many times or what ends up being a bad use of AI many, many, many times, most often is not intentional. It's really that the, you know, it all really falls on the data and how clean the data is. The, you know, data is labeled by, um, in, in many instances for, especially for our, you know, big tech companies labeled by individuals in India who spend hours and hours labeling documents. Um, you know, there's a lot that can be lost with, a, a, you know, another culture, another time zone, another um, just area of, of the world labeling documents that really can be used in such um, important ways, you know, consider an algorithm which has been built to determine whether a customer might default on a loan. If the only, if, if the only training data that's being inputted into the system is to teach the system what a low risk loan looks like and um, is loans on white loans made to white males, the system is unfairly going to flag loans to other races and genders as high risk. I mean, that's that's an example. And if that training data, um, in in some instances, they just you know the the data has to be labeled. And so, I think it's it's a function of how much data there is, and it's just being used in ways that the consequences are unintended. Um, you know, how about when you look at data and data that's put into a system on who is the better hire, you know, if the training data being inputted to teach the system what a good hire looks like, again, only consists of the resumes of men, the system will spit out resumes of women as not being a good fit. So, um, th that's, these are kind of illustrations of basic bias issues that, that we've seen, um, you know, so the training data and how it's labeled is is really, really important. Mm -hmm. So in order to get good results, you have to be comfortable with the quality of the data and the approach that you've taken in the first place. Right, right. And there's, you know, there's a lot of journal articles. There's a lot of research that has been done and published out there by um, Timnit Gubru, who was the scientist that was laid off by Google and mm. it caused a huge um, uproar. Um, she and some of her colleagues wrote a paper called Data Sheets for Data Sets. Mm -hmm. And it sort of goes through for companies what they can look at when they're accumulating all this data because the data sits in huge repositories that companies purchase from, mm. um, you know, and get on the web for free sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. there are these huge data sets. And so companies really need to do the due diligence to really look at the data and spend the time to make sure that the data isn't corrupt in that way. That's again, unintentional. Mm. Mm, great. And then looking to the future now, how can you see thoughtful use of AI and machine learning assisting compliance officers in the next five years? Well, I think it will only continue to grow in its use because of um, how much data, you know, a typical company has to sift through. And we had the DOJ guidance that was published in June of 2020, which basically um, focuses on what one of the focuses is on whether compliance programs are adequately resourced. Mm. So the guidance instructs prosecutors to assess whether compliance has sufficient 
direct or indirect access to relevant sources of data to allow for timely and effective monitoring and or testing of policies, controls, and transactions. That's a direct quote from the guidance. And, you know, given how many emails, given the proliferation of communication platforms like Zoom and Teams and all the millions and millions of users, that's just mm -hmm. like, those are just a couple examples of how much data there is out there. I think that the compliance professional is really going to have to get their heads around how artificial intelligence and machine learning systems can help them do their jobs better and predict these patterns and, um, you know, to, in order to, you know, comply with the, with the guidance by the Department of Justice, but also just to sleep at night, right? Moving on to some uh, uh, personal and professional development now, Colleen. In order for us to improve both as compliance practitioners and personally, it's important to have a level of self-awareness and adjust ourselves accordingly when needed. What is your advice for how we can best be self-aware? Well, I have sisters and I have kids and I have a husband who keep me um, in check. <laughs> and I think that is one of probably my most grounding self-aware mechanisms, whether mm -hmm. I want that mechanism foisted upon me or not. Mm -hmm. But I'm also really tuned in, like Lisa Beslantini has um, a lot of good advice on her um, that she puts on LinkedIn, you know, to mm -hmm. really have positive self-talk. I talk to myself constantly. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and I really do think that it's a, it's a way to be self-aware, but it can also be negative too. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I try to, to try to keep my self-talk positive, but keep it real as well. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, kind of circles back to if I don't, my kids will, you know, I mean, they, mm -hmm. they really do. I think they're, you know, they're older and now they're in a position where they can kind of call me out on, you know, if I give them crap about swearing or something, mm -hmm. and then the next minute I'm swearing, it's like, you know, <laughs> uh, where's the, is that not hypocrisy, mother, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, things like that, I think really help. And, and I think just, you know, asking for feedback mm -hmm. when I was at Syngenta, which is another agribusiness that I was, I practiced in-house law. I asked one of the business partners that I worked with, I had been there six months and I asked him to give me feedback on how mm -hmm. I was doing. And my boss at the time just was really blown away by that because it wasn't anything formal, but I just mm -hmm. wanted to know, I wanted mm -hmm. to know what he thought. Um, and I think, you know, you don't have, it doesn't have to be a part of any sort of formal process. Mm -hmm. It can just be very informal, but really, really ask for the feedback and expect, you know, constructive criticism and really listen to it. One of the tips I learned recently from reading something of Adam Grant's is to ask for feedback and make it best easy for the other person is to ask them to phrase it along the lines of what one thing could I do to improve or what one thing would increase my effectiveness? And that really puts them in a position to want to give you, to want to give you a suggestion um, and really feel comfortable moving forward with, with giving you that advice that you need. So. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Adam Grant is fabulous. His stuff yeah. is fabulous. And Brene Brown. And I mean, there's, so many different sources out there that you can go to if you're feeling mm -hmm. like you kind of need a, you know, what do I need to do to sort of ramp it up a little bit? Mm -hmm. And then a little um, tip for <laughs> listeners, um, Adam Grant is going to be a keynote speaker at Navex Global's virtual conference, which is coming up in early October. So for those of you who are a fan of Adam Grant, the fact that he's going to be speaking to a compliance audience, that's super exciting. So um, take a look for that. If you've not joined the LinkedIn Great Woman in Compliance uh, community group, I encourage you to come find us on there, join the conversation. And we do have the link specifically to that conference. It's free to attend and you get to see um, celebrity Adam Grant there, which is super exciting. Wonderful. Yes, that's, I am absolutely going to check that out. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Colleen, so much for your time today. I love that you spoke on a substantive and technical topic so well for our listeners. And I'm sure that many of us who aren't as strong in this area as you feel like they've got a better understanding now of what it's about. Thank you so very much for having me. This was awesome. Wonderful. I could listen to you all day long, Mary. All day long. <laughs> Same here, Colleen. I really appreciate that. And uh, to our listeners, if um, if you also feel like you could listen to Lisa and myself and our <laughs> guests all day long, uh, we would encourage you to um, scroll down in your um, podcast app to where it's got the ratings. If you wouldn't mind giving us a great big five stars, if you think we warrant it, we'd be most grateful. And if you even have a minute or two to drop down a little review, um, I know it's tricky with one finger texting, but um, if you love us enough, we would be so grateful for that. And also a little shameless plug for ourselves yet again, since I'm already on the topic. If you have a colleague with a birthday coming up and you really miss going to after work drinks to celebrate a colleague's birthday, why not think about a substitute and instead get them the Great Woman in Compliance book, sending the elevator back down what we've learned from Great Woman in Compliance as a little treat until we can next be reunited again. Thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate you and hope that all is going well in your personal and professional lives. Take good care and see you soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.